And the verse that we're interested in looking out or calling attention to in particular this morning is verse number 54 of Luke chapter 9. So let's reread that verse. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll be looking into God's word this morning. So this particular verse says this, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? What an interesting question that is. So we'll spend some time with it this morning, considering uh, the question itself and the context of it, and then, of course, the response that Jesus gives. See what the lesson is that we're given to learn from this this morning. But let's have a word of prayer, because we certainly want to start off and, and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day that you've given to us. Thank you for all the people of God who found it possible to be out today. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you will uh, work in our hearts today, Father. We, we come to confess at the beginning that we're a needy people. Uh, even, Lord, when we've had a great week, even when we feel like the, uh, we've had fair winds and following seas, it just seems like uh, the needs are deeper than we ever realize. And sometimes we get weeks where we're able to understand a little bit more uh, accurately just where we stand and how much we need you. But Father, please meet with us today. Please just give us a, a, a heart that is desirous of listening in to see what you may have for us, knowing that um, this is an hour of divine appointment. The preaching of your word is something we do, not just because it's an idea of our own, but because this is what you've ordained. And uh, this is one of those ways in which you have chosen to speak to us on a regular basis. And even as we engage in corporate worship, we're thankful that we always know that we have the availability of the Word of God, the voice of God, to speak to us. And thank you, Father, that you know us as individuals. You understand our down-sitting. You understand our uprising. You know our thoughts are far off. So we're confident that you know what we need today and help us just to be hungry and expectant uh, for something that will direct us and encourage us and bless us. We thank you for the a reminder that we heard in the music a while ago about the storm passing by. And Lord, we realize it's, it's such a fitting metaphor for life that so many times storms are passing by. And yet this past week, we've seen the, the reality of when it's literal with this hurricane coming and bringing so much devastation to people, especially in the Bahamas. Lord, we pray for those people where there's been so much destruction, so much death, so much loss of, 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 of the, the, the normal way of life that people were used to. And Lord, we don't know what to say except to know that we're grateful that you're in control of all of these things. We're grateful that you can bring good out of what seems to be evil. We're thankful that many times these things, these disasters do uh, bring an availability and openness in people's hearts uh, to spiritual things. We pray there might even be people who are saved as a result of this. We pray that people, uh, Christian people and others, will understand more deeply what it means to love one another and to have community spirit and to help where it's needed. We pray that you give uh, the government officials and others that have to try to deal with this now uh, great wisdom. And Lord, uh, just uh, send healing to that place, especially spiritual healing. And even our own country in North Carolina and other places where we've had issues coming out of this, pray, Lord, that you will uh, work in hearts and lives. Now, Father, we are gathered this morning, and there may be storms. Of that, we do not always know. Uh, many times, that which is in our hearts is not always known uh, to each of our neighbors, but you know. And so, Lord, uh, we're needy. We confess that again. We pray that you'll bless. 
Pray that you'll just give uh, freedom and utterance in the proclamation of your word this morning. And no matter what the topic, Lord, we know there's something that you can take from it to use in our lives. Pray that you'll just give me a liberty and freedom in preaching the word this morning and a a sense of your presence and fresh cleansing and uh, the ability to say those things that you want said. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. They ask him this, of course, is the series we've been working on for some time now, and we've progressed all the way through Matthew. We've progressed through Mark, picking up a couple that we didn't get in Matthew. Now Luke, where we're picking up a couple here as well. And these, of course, are questions that people ask Jesus, and we've seen groupings of these. The disciples asked a lot. We have one of those again this morning where the disciples, but two in particular, James and John. And that'll be, I think, a significant detail to zero in on in just a bit when we get down to that part of the message. But there's a rather interesting question here. We have that in verse number 54, where you have a fairly full-blown rendition of it, which is good because it gives us the details. And I've shortened that just for our use this morning. Lord, should we call down fire? I don't know if you've ever wondered if there were a time or two when maybe you shouldn't think about that or wanted to be able to do that. If so, you have uh, some company because Peter and John, or rather James and John, were certainly thinking that way. It's kind of interesting to notice a detail here in Luke chapter uh, 9 in that opening verse because it helps us set the stage a little bit, also helps us to maybe understand uh, a little bit of why this story is unique, which it is. It's unique to Luke's gospel. Don't have a, a, this record. So it's not just that we have the story in one of the other synoptic gospels, but not the question. It's that we don't have the story in any of the other gospels. Well, each of the writers, of course, even when they're using a lot of the same material, which the first three Gospels do, each has his own point of view, each has his theme, each has the direction he's going, each, of course, has the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this. Well, in the arrangement of things as Luke gives it, you might notice it tends to be a little different from time to time than what we have in Matthew and Mark, and Luke also gives us some material that we don't have in Matthew and Mark. And it's kind of interesting that it seems rather early in the book, we're only in chapter 9, that you would have a reference to what seems to be Jesus embarking on his final journey to Jerusalem. Look at verse 51 again. It says there, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, we know that's part of the story, but Mostly um, in the other Gospels, it seems like we have a lot of other material before we get to this late in the stage where Jesus is making his, his appointment with final, his rendezvous with final destiny in Jerusalem. But how this really works out in Mark's Gospel is beginning some in chapter number four and running down through this point in chapter number nine, you do have a lot of the, of the, of the stories that are given to us about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. But Luke starts early with this, and he switches gears kind of early, beginning in chapter 9 and verse 51, where we are in our scripture this morning, and running clear down through the first part of chapter 19, with Jesus moving towards Jerusalem and and the different aspects of ministry and events and happenings and so forth that took place as he did do that. And so that's where we are in the story this morning. And here you have a situation where... uh, Jesus' journey is taking him through Samaria. 
that would be the shortest way geographically if you're in Galilee. But as you know, many times the Jews avoided going through Samaria and crossed over the Jordan River into what's known as Perea. It would be on the eastern side of the, uh, of the Jordan River to avoid Samaria. And then they would cross back over somewhere in the, in the area of uh, Jericho and come back up and come up to Jerusalem that way. And thus they would avoid the area of Samaria. But in this particular trip, Jesus is uh, coming through Samaria. Same thing that we read about in the John chapter 4 story where he met the woman at the well. He sends disciples ahead of him to prepare so that uh, the likelihood is they would be able to overnight in a particular village of the Samaritans as they came to the end of this day. And things don't go well. The people in the Samaritan village are unwelcoming. As soon as they find out that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem, uh, they become unkind and uh, the atmosphere is, is not good there. And James and John don't react to that very well. They get hot under the collar. They get upset about this. And this is what provokes this question that they ask of Jesus about, should we call down fire? And they mention Elijah as Elijah did in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus rebukes them. His response to this is where it's really instructive because when we come out in the end of this, where I'm headed with this message this morning and where I think the message of this passage is, is what Jesus is having to remind the disciples of what the true priority and spirit of this age of grace and this, this gospel age in which we live. That Jesus came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. And there'll be plenty enough time, beloved, believe me, for judgment when Jesus returns the second time. But it certainly was not the emphasis of his coming in the first instance, and certainly is not the inf- instance of, or I- the emphasis of what this gospel age is about, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And this is the message that you and I are given in the church age to carry the message of Jesus Christ, his redeeming love on the cross of Calvary, his sacrifice for sinners to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're about. So we want to take a look at this and see if we can get more detail and learn a little bit more from it as we go along. So we're going to look at three scenes in this once again. The first of them is rejection. Before we get to this, I want to call your attention to just a few little incident, what I'll call incidental items of interest. There are two things that I think are in verse 51 that we don't have time to digress. It's a bit of a, um, you know, a rabbit trail, if, if you can use that language when you're talking about something that's in Scripture, everything is important. But that's where there's a difference between just talking about what's in verses and preaching a sermon, because typically in your sermon you have a theme, you have a direction that you're trying to head. You're not necessarily just trying to comment on everything that's in every verse. But there's a couple things here I think are really important to mention, at least that you see it, ponder it, and uh, are challenged to think about it perhaps some other time. But there's a reference in verse 51 to a little preached doctrine, and yet it's extremely important. And what that doctrine is, is the ascension. Do you know, if you're looking at a liturgical calendar, a church calendar, where churches, uh, or there are denominations and so forth that follow this, you even have a day designated in the, the, the Christian year that's called Ascension Day. But it would be kind of interesting to poll and ask this morning, you don't have to put your hand up, you don't even have to wink or nod, but 
How many people here this morning have heard a sermon on the ascension? And where you have that, of course, is, in fact, it's hard. you may not recognize this, so I'm going to say it so that maybe we'll be able to see it in some other verses. You actually have the technical language, the word that is technically used for it throughout Scripture of the ascension, either a noun form or a verb form. In verse number 51, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. And if you take that phrase literally, it's the day of his receiving up or the day of his taking up. And so we often don't hear sermons on this, and yet the Ascension is a tremendously important Christian doctrine because it bears testimony to his deity. It bears testimony to his present ministry of sitting at the right hand of God to make intercession for us, and it bears testimony to his coming again. So this is the reason that this doctrine is important to the church. And I would be interested also, and I'm probably doing too much now with this, but <laughs> these things are fascinating, but how many of you, you don't, again, not to put your hand up, but how many of you grew up in a different church, maybe a denominational church, where you recited a creed each Sunday? And if so, how many of you recited the Apostles' Creed? How many of you know the Apostles' Creed? Because if you did that, whether you realized it or not, you were, you were every time you recited the Apostles' Creed, it gave reference to the Ascension. So let's see how we do with this. See if I can, somebody might have to help me because I'm not in the habit of doing this now like I used to. But I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven where he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty from when she shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And it goes on for another paragraph. But the ascension is right there. All right, let's look at this verse and let's quickly look at a couple of others. And we, we need to sort of pick this up a little bit. But let's go back to Mark's gospel. Because as I say, the day of his taking up, that word taking up, that's the actual technical term that the Bible uses for this. So Mark chapter 16, verse 18. Mark chapter 16 and verse 19, sorry. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, look at this, he was received up into heaven. You know what that is? That's the ascension. He was taken up. Same, same, same word, same terminology. Let's go to the book of Acts. And we have three references here, as well as an actual description of the event taking place. So in Acts chapter 1, look at verse 2. You're looking for this terminology now, this word. Until the day, verse 2, in which he was taken up. See, you read it all the time, just don't realize what it is you're, you're seeing there. Until the time that he was taken up, then we drop down to verse number 11, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus which is taken up? Received up, taken up. Same word. Okay? Into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And in verse 22, if we drop down later in the chapter, it says, Beginning from the baptism of John, Unto that same day he was taken up. Wow. All the stuff you've been reading and didn't maybe quite realize what it was, but it's very important. One more. 
Go over to the book of 1 Timothy. I was amazed that this verse happened to come up in the Sunday school hour this morning, kind of already knowing that I was going to call attention to it. But now you actually get over to the epistles where you actually have some doctrine which is kind of crystallized, and in some places we even have little fragments of creedal statements, which is what you have in 1 Timothy 3.16. Look at this. There's six statements here. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What are the six statements? Number one, God was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world. And what's the last one? Received up into glory, taken up into glory. That's the ascension. So it's kind of interesting that Luke gives us that here in this verse. Now that's one incidental. We took too much time. But the other incidental is the resolute commitment that Jesus has to the will of the Father. And there's always something to be learned from this because it says in this verse, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was just simply committed to what it was that God had for him to do. Knowing full well, because earlier in the chapter, we have the record of how he was preparing the disciples for this. Back in verse 22, if you want to look, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. He says, here's what's, here's what's ahead. Here's what's going to happen at Jerusalem. And yet he sets his face steadfastly. It speaks of that, that determination, that commitment. I come to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And you actually have in this a fulfillment of an Old Testament or a reference, a cite, not a citation, but a, a, something that Isaiah talked about in chapter 50. And I'm going to read this verse for you. A lot of these things are just kind of there. Easy to skip over them and miss them. But Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says, I'm sorry, verse 7 For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And there's a devotional application we can easily make from this because when we do determine that we're going to commit ourselves to what it is that God has for us, he talks about the fact, for the Lord God will help me. And sometimes it's not easy. And we marvel at Jesus' commitment here. So those are the two incidentals. But the main facet, so let's get back on track with the sermon, is the story of the unfriendliness that Jesus and his disciples encountered here. You'll notice that it says, did not receive him down in verse 53. Now, you may look back up at what we saw before in verse number 51, and it says that he should be received up. And then we have the same English word again down in verse 53. And what's interesting is, even though the English translation is the same, we have two different words in the original. And the particular word that's used to receive here, when it's used in contrast to the other word, is to receive in the sense of to welcome. And you'll get a feel for what that is if you just look back up at verse number 48, where it says, And said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all the same shall be great. 
So what's this mean? It, it has the idea of receiving someone in a welcoming way. Like you would receive someone into your house uh, for hospitality, for friendship. Um, you would greet someone at the door of the church as they were coming in and shake hands with them and welcome them into the church. That's, you could even translate this welcome and you would be fine. In fact, you would, get, you would definitely get what's going on. Jesus sends the disciples ahead to prepare uh, for him there. They get to this particular unnamed village of the Samaritans, and then it is that verse 53 says, they did not receive. It's the whole idea, they did not welcome him. Why? Because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now, do we know anything about this? Or is this random? Why, why, do we, why do we get that detail? It's explaining why they didn't welcome him. And of course, we do know something about it. In fact, I, I actually alluded to it earlier because it's the whole reason why the Jews would avoid Samaria and detour around over across the other side of the Jordan River, skip it and come in either in the north if you were going to Galilee or in the south if you were going to Judea. Samaria was between the two geographically. So they sacrificed the, the easier straight route to avoid these people. And all we have to do is turn. I don't, I don't think you need to do this. I think you're familiar enough with the story. But the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus was on another mission. And it says he must needs go through Samaria. Why? Well, it was a divine appointment. He knew he had somebody to meet at that well. And so it got to be around noontime, and he sat thus on the well. He was hot and tired with his journey. You remember the story? And a woman comes out. Interesting, she came out at noon when normally they would come in the early morning or late in the day to draw that water, but she came at noon because it was uncomfortable even for her because of her background, her morals and so forth. It was just uncomfortable. And Jesus sees her coming, and he says to her, give me to drink. And what does she say? How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest water of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews? Notice how she puts it. She doesn't say the Samaritans. She says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And of course, it's the ancient hostility that, that took place years and years ago when the deportation when the first captivity occurred in the north and the Assyrians took the people out of the land and brought in these people who were non-Israelites, who were Gentiles, who brought their, their own gods with them. And they established, they even had their own temple, which is what Jesus gets into this, this discussion with, with the woman at the well. She says to him, well, you guys say in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. But see, they had their own uh, mount where they worshiped there in Samaria and you had this rival worship and there were disagreements and problems over it and hostility had developed the Jews essentially regarded them as half-breeds but I have a question for you I have a question for me do half-breeds need to be saved did Jesus die on the cross for half-breeds or just for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? Well, it's... I hope you don't misunderstand where I'm coming from. If you've known 
you know anything about me, you know I'm not a liberal. But I just think that sometimes we have to be really, really careful that we don't let some of our reaction to some of what goes on in society, which to be sure is an excess and is disturbing, keep us from understanding that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. He wasn't up there deciding which kind. And John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world. It didn't say God so loved the Jews. God so loved the world. And it's tough for us sometimes. I mean, look, folks, let's just be honest. We all have our prejudices. We all have our backgrounds. There's no sense in just so being so angelic and cherubic about it. We're all this way. And it constantly takes the reminder of the love of Christ and what the mission of the church truly is for us to keep some of our prejudices at bay. Because there are just some people that we just have a disdain for and we have to sort of sometimes get beyond the sin which we don't like to the sinner whom we should in the bonds of Christ have concern for. That's what's going on here. And so it's that old hostility that's coming out. And I think maybe this is one of the reasons that Luke decides to, the Holy Spirit, of course, is instrumental, but why Luke decides to record this story is because it makes good preparation for what's ahead. And what's ahead, we already read about in chapter 9, verse 22, when Jesus was telling Peter after the transfiguration, um, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, verse 22, and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. I'm not suggesting that the other Gospels don't do much with this. They certainly do. But I am suggesting that Luke, I think, picks up on this theme in some ways that maybe the others don't. After all, we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse Three, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was acquainted with rejection. And I don't know what kind of experiences you've had in life, but I can tell you one thing. Rejection is painful. Most people don't like to not be liked. <laughs> it's a double negative makes a positive, I guess. Most, most of us prefer to get along with people and to be liked. Anybody that thrives on fighting has got a problem somewhere because it doesn't make for peace. It doesn't make for peace in your own life and it doesn't make for peace with other people. I think you go through a stage, you know, I watch it sometimes in young people and I can even see it a little bit in um, one of my children, I won't mention who, <laughs> where it's just that a little bit of that youthful flush, a little bit like James and John. Well, those are my two boys, James and John. And we'll get to that in a minute. I didn't name them for this reason, but there is some interesting detail there in a few moments we'll get to. But when you're young, you know, you could take anybody on. And... Why? Some people don't get over it, though. I had a fella. <laughs> I remember a fella in the ministry one time several years back. He told me, 
this man's well into his 60s. I'll fight anybody. Well, if you have to, you have to, but not much spiritual about going out of your way to look for it. Luke, though, has a lot of material on this. You know, Luke is the only one who gives us the detail about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 7 of Luke, that when he was there in Bethlehem, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It's almost like, almost like from the very beginning, you, you kind of get the impression of what it's going to be like. No room. There was no room for him in that inn. There was no room for him in that city of Samaria. There was no room for him in Nazareth. Did you know that? If you turn over a couple pages to chapter 4, that's that story that only Luke has about how he went into the synagogue and stood up for to read and was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he began to read. He made several applications to the people. And you get down to verse 12. 29 and it says and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast cast him down headlong rejection it certainly happened in the life of Jesus Donald Donald Gray Barnhouse of course years back was uh, a, a very well-known minister, 10th, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Well, he was succeeded by a man by the name of James Montgomery Boise, and he's, Boise has written some different commentaries and so forth, and he too is a reputable minister. I don't know who's there today, but Boise was on one occasion telling a story from Barnhouse. So it's apparently was familiar with the story from Barnhouse, but there was a man, this was about the time of World War I, and this young man had gone off to war, and before he went off to war, Barnhouse had led him to Christ. And there seemed to be ample evidence that the profession was genuine because he had told different soldiers that he came, in, different of his soldiers that he came in contact with, he had told them about the Lord. But as it was time for the war to wind down and he was coming back home, he was very concerned. He was very concerned that when he got back into that affluent, wealthy atmosphere in Philadelphia from which he, in which he had grown up and got around his friends that he, he didn't know if he might slip back. He didn't know if he'd have the courage to take the stand for Christ that um, sometimes, you know, when you're with unnamed people that you don't know, it's a little easier to talk than it is when you're around ones you do know. And so he went to... His, his pastor and Barnhouse told him, he said, I tell you what, here's what you do. He said, when you get back home, he said, just make a determination that you're going to tell the first 10 people that you encounter about what's happened to you in your life. And so he's, Barnhouse told him what, very wisely. So he said, uh, if you do that, he said, you won't have to worry about giving up improper friends because he said they'll give you up. And so sure enough, when he came back in on the train, he had hardly gotten off the train before he met up with a, a nice-looking young woman. He'd known her socially before. And so she smiled, you know, with one of those thousand-watt smiles and went up to talk to him. And he said to her, he said, uh, the most wonderful thing has happened in my life. And she thought, oh, she said, are, 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 did you get engaged to be married? 
He said, no, something far more wonderful than that. He said, I, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And it was almost like her, that, that smile just sort of froze instantaneously. And then there was just a little bit of a hesitancy there. She mumbled a few polite words and went on her way. That was the end of that. Not too long after that, he met up with another uh, fellow, a, a fellow, this a young guy he'd known. He'd been friends with him before. And the young man, when he saw him, said, hey, it's good to see you back. And he said, well, he said, and the, and the young man went on to continue. Well, we'll look, we're going to have some great parties now that you've come back. And his friend looked at him and he said, well, he said, I've just become a Christian. And in his mind, he was thinking to himself, ah, that's two, I've done it with two. About that time, the same thing happened. His friend's smile just kind of froze momentarily and they said a few more pleasant things and off he went. The day progressed and time progressed and a couple more people, same thing had happened and it wasn't very long before word got around and some of his friends stopped seeing him. They had, didn't have any interest in him before because they thought he'd become peculiar, a religious nut or whatever they thought. Maybe some called him crazy, but the same confession that had aligned him with Christ now separated him from those who did not have any interest in Christ and didn't want to hear so, beloved, here's what I'm trying to say. You don't have to look for this trouble. You don't have to look for it. It will come to us. What's the response to this? Well, the disciples don't react well. And I think it's interesting that he calls out James and John. Do you remember back in Mark 3.17 that Jesus gave a name to James and John? He surnamed Peter, he surnamed, he surnamed Simon, and called him what? Peter. But he called James and John the sons of thunder, Boanerges. <laughs> I really didn't think about that when we named our two sons James and John. It really was not on my mind. But it's really the only place we have this term, and Mark has to tell us what it means sons of thunder. And there's been talk back and forth about exactly what that means, but I think what it tends to mean is, is that they were outspoken. They weren't afraid to express themselves. They reacted quickly and many times with emotion to what they were feeling and had to say. And we certainly see it here. In fact, earlier in the chapter, you have an example of John doing it apart from what we already have here. Look back at verse 49 where... He says to Jesus, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils or demons in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. It's just like, hey, we don't, have, we don't have any rivals here. If you're not in this group, you're not in the right group. <laughs> I tell you, that spirit's still alive and well in Christian circles. If you're not in our group. And then we have, of course, the fact that James, we have this detail in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. James was the first martyr. 
we're not given any details there, but do you think maybe that had something to do with that? That he was fearless, outspoken. Acts chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So somehow temperamentally, these men were put together in such a way, and I really find it encouraging because when you realize that Jesus called these 12 men, he wasn't calling perfect people. But when he gave them those names, then it betrayed the, the fact that he had insights into them, insights laced with omniscience. He had insights into them and the kind of people they were. But he called them and used them anyway because he worked in their hearts and he worked in their lives. And certainly Peter, even though he was surnamed uh, Peter the, the Rock, certainly Peter had many times when he, he had failings. James and John were outspoken. In this case, it was mistaken zeal. Um, it's so typical of the offense that we are so quick to take. They're ready to call down fire, but as is so often the case, they miscite scriptural precedent. So I think you have two things going on here. Not only is this mistaken zeal, they think somehow they have to defend Jesus against these Samaritans. But at the same point, by the way, the Lord doesn't really need us to do that, especially when you realize that most of the time, whenever we get ready to do it, we don't do it well. That's why the Bible tells us, let, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And boy, when you just feel that burbling up inside of you, the bubbling up inside of you, that anger is starting to, it's, it's time to ask God for a little help check what you're going to say because a lot of times till we have it thought through until we really get control of our spirits we don't always do very well with this in this case they didn't do very well but they cited scriptural precedent now maybe we save a minute or two of time you remember the story so Elijah goes and he's up on this hill it's in 2 Kings 1 if you want to turn to it and Ahaziah, who is the son of Ahab, has fallen down through the lattice work. He was a wicked king. He's fallen down through the lattice work, and he sends a messenger to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to find out whether or not he's going to recover. And God sends Elijah to intervene the, these messengers and say, you don't even need to go there. Just turn around and tell him he isn't going to recover. <laughs> Judgment came on that man. So he goes back, and it's like the king says to him, you get back so fast. Well, this guy met us. What kind of guy? Hairy guy. Oh, you're kidding. Hairy guy with a leather belt? Oh, brother. He's the guy that caused my father so much trouble. It's that Elijah guy. So he sent a captain with his 50, remember? And Elijah called down fire and they were consumed. The second, he sent the second captain with his 50 and Elijah called down fire and they were consumed. The third guy is different. He comes humbly. He beseeches the prophet. God says to him, you're safe with this guy. You can go. See, they misrepresent this scripture. This scripture never really had anything to do with it because these guys weren't in danger. God did that in the life of Elijah because Elijah was threatened by those people. Elijah wasn't threatened by the third captain who went. 
He had a totally different spirit. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't violent. He simply had a job to do for the king, and he fell down on his face before the man of God and said, Let my life and the life of these my fifty be precious in thy sight. And God said, Go with him. He's okay. Well, James and John weren't in any peril of their life with these people. Jesus wasn't in any peril of his life with these people, but they latch on to that. And beloved, I'm telling you, there's another great lesson for us, and is you have to be awfully careful. Sometimes I hear people quote, quote Scripture to buttress ideas and arguments they have, and they don't know what they're talking about. So we need to know the Scripture, especially when we're going to make arguments from it and use it to support positions that we're taking. So we've got to get to the end of this. What's the rebuke that comes at the end? Verses 55 and 56, a strong word to rebuke. Verse 55 says, but he turned to rebuke them. I got to looking at this because I know this word. It's a strong word. And do you know something? It's easy enough to find references where Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. It's easy enough to find references where Jesus rebuked demons. This word. But with a cursory search, the only other time I could turn up that Jesus rebuked one of the disciples one time. And it was Peter. And we have a reference to this in Mark chapter 8. I want to read this verse for you. Mark chapter 8, verse 33. You're familiar with this. But Peter was the one who had rebuked the Lord. And then the Lord, it says, when he had turned about, looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but the things that be of men. My, what a way to talk to the first pope. Hello? Okay, I was just trying to see if you were listening and if you were awake. Anyway, that's the only other place in the Bible that I can really find that you have this. So this is significant. Wow, I mean, he, Jesus really wanted to set this straight with them. They'd forgotten their mission. They'd forgotten their true purpose. He says, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them And rather than have it become a problem, Jesus just left and went to another village. That's what it says. Sometimes the best thing you can do is walk away. You know that? I've done that many a time. When you know you just don't have the presence of mind and the control to do or say the right thing, you're better to walk away because you can't call words back. And they, rather than rather than make a bad situation worse and and close the door to some kind of a further gospel witness in that place, Jesus just turned and they they left rather than have it become a fight. But I think where Jesus is is upset with this is is how many times had he told them, both in word and by example, to try to tell them what he was about. As I quoted earlier in John 3.17, for the Son of God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Over in John chapter 12, verse 47, he, he put it to them this way. For, and if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. What was it that he said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he was talking 
about Nicodemus. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Beloved, I'm telling you, there's plenty of time for judgment. It's coming. But you and I aren't really called to make those determinations. I have to ask myself, and maybe you're thinking about this too, Wilson, what do you do with the portions in the Old Testament? What do you do with the imprecatory Psalms? How does all of that, especially if you're thinking about the fact that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and all Scripture is profitable. So do we just throw that out? Does that have no bearing? Does that have no application? Does it never have any relevance? Here, I want to give you one verse, just as an example. In Psalm 139, verse 21, the psalmist, and this is David, says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? Yeah, there's a place for it. But it's not the priority. It's not what our first response should be. It's more like the last response when we've exhausted all other options of trying to win people and they have given absolutely every evidence that their, their heart and intent is set towards wickedness and evil and they have no intention whatever to change. Maybe there's a time for that. It's not unprofitable. It's part of the Bible. But it's not the spirit of the age in which we live. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? How much more we understand in this New Testament dispensation, how much has been clarified to us about who God is and how much he loves sinners and what he was willing to do when he sent Jesus Christ, his son, into the cross of Calvary to die for us. If you want an example of where we really need to be, I want to tell you a quick story and we'll have to finish, but You know, there are many, many stories have come to us from the Titanic. But in secular stories or movies, you're probably not going to hear this story ever told. But yet to me, it's one of the most famous that you could ever hear. And it concerns a, a Scottish evangelist by the name of John Harper. And many times the story is told under the banner of Harper's last convert. Well, who was John Harper? He was a Scottish evangelist. Why was he on the Titanic? Well, he was coming to accept the call to be the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. A few years before his wife had died, he was crossing the Atlantic with his daughter, Nana, and coming to be the pastor of of the Moody Church. Well, of course, you know what happened. I mean, in the story, the ship struck the iceberg, The ship began to sink. Harper was trying to help people. Originally, he had a life jacket, but he was going around yelling. Now, listen to this. This is an interesting thing for a Christian to be doing. He was going around yelling, and the way he put it was this way, women, children, and unsaved to the lifeboats. What a way to be thinking. Women, children, and unsaved to the lifeboats. Harper worked to get those people on those lifeboats and eventually one of the last people that he helped reported that Harper took off his own life jacket and gave it to that individual. Well, of course, the ship went down. Somehow Harper survived for a while at least because he was clinging to some kind of a piece of wreckage that kept him above the surface of the water. And as he drifted around in the water, the currents brought him close to a man, and he hollered out to the man, and he said, man, are you saved? The man answered him. He said, no, I'm not. 
He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And some waves hit, so forth, and the two were separated. Providentially, it wasn't too much longer than the waters moved them back together again. Harper recognized him and he said, man, are you saved now? And the man said, no, I cannot honestly say that I am. And Harper again pled with him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It wasn't too long after Harper went down, but the man survived along with six other people. It was four years later in a public meeting that this man got up and gave testimony. And this is what he said, there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I believe. I am John Harper's last convert. How would you rather be known? Lord, should we call down fire? Or, man, are you saved? This is what Jesus is trying to say to us. This is what Jesus is trying to say to them. So if today that you've got something you're holding on to, more than likely you're only hurting yourself, you must let it go for your sake and for the sake of others. Only when we take on more and more of the spirit, attitude, and love of the Lord Jesus are we really reflecting the spirit of the age in which we live and what it is to truly show people across Whatever lines God brings us across, people, the love of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminders that we need. It's so easy for us to become comfortable with the people we know and uncomfortable with the people we don't know. And the truth of the matter is, Lord, we all have our backgrounds, our likes, our dislikes. But we do know that we need reminders periodically that we have to transcend that for Christ's sake. We have to rise above that. And even though we find many things in this day in which we live that, quite frankly, are revolting to us, we know that it's simply a story of there go I but the grace of God. Thank you for someone that reached out and cared enough to tell us, even though perhaps at the time we were unlovely and arrogant And I pray, Lord, you give us more of a heart for lost people, more of a willingness to reach out to them in spite of the difficulty that's sometimes involved. And make us more like Christ in this sense, I pray. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name we pray. Amen.